Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took out the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God, because you have not withheld your, from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kate. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. We are working our way through the book of Genesis this summer, and uh, today we are looking at a portion of the narrative that is probably the most broadly discussed and deeply debated passage in the entire Bible. Um, It's one of the few biblical narratives that actually is so significant that it has its own name. Um, This story is called the Akeda, which in Hebrew means the binding, referring to the binding of Abraham's son, Isaac. Um, My first year out of high school, I took some classes at Lynn Lynn Benton Community College in Albany, Oregon. Go Roadrunners. (laughs) And uh, it's, uh, I found it to be pretty much exactly like high school, except you could smoke. Um, And so one of the classes I took was Philosophy 121, Introduction to World Religions. And I remember the first day of class, without any introduction or explanation, the instructor stood up, opened a Bible to Genesis 22, and he read this story. And then he closed the Bible and asked the class, what kind of God would ask someone 
to sacrifice their child. And then he kind of just threw it to the group, this ragtag group of nicotine-wired GED students and adult learners and just kind of let us wrestle it out. And in general, we were appalled by the story, right? Um, Even though God stops Abraham from going through with it in the end, who would worship a God that demands obedience even if it means killing one of your kids? The truth is, this is a problematic story and not just for condescending community college professors, (laughs) but for Christians. It's not just that it's culturally problematic for us as modern, enlightened Westerners, but it's also biblically and theologically problematic. Um, Meaning, not only do God's words and actions here contradict some of our innate sensibilities, but they also contradict God and go against other things that have already been revealed to us in the scripture about who God is and what God is like. And so let me tell you what I mean. God's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son goes against what God has said on at least two levels. The first is that from the very beginning of the story, God has made it clear that human beings are made in his image and likeness. And therefore, every single human life has value and deserves to be honored and protected. Um, Back in Genesis 9, God specifically tells Noah that any violence against humanity is an assault on his image. Genesis 9, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So here you have God clearly condemning human violence in any form, saying that anyone who does violence to another person is doing violence against him. Okay? But not only does God condemn the shedding of human blood in general, he also condemns the practice of human sacrifice specifically. Later on in the story, God would tell his people through the prophet Jeremiah, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built to the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Himnam to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So God says that he's never commanded anyone to sacrifice their children to him. In fact, he says that thought has never even crossed his mind. So, raises some questions for us. That's our first theological problem with the story. God has declared all human life to be sacred and condemned the shedding of human blood in general, specifically human sacrifice. And yet here in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. Here's our second biblical problem, and it has to do with who Abraham's son is. Over the past few weeks, as we've journeyed through Genesis, we've walked with Abraham and Sarah on their story, and we've, in their story, and we've seen that all the promises God has made to them have hinged on the birth of this son, Isaac. This is the way that they were going to become the parents of a great nation, to be God's instrument in bringing blessing to all peoples on earth. And so Isaac wasn't just the hope of their family, he really represents the hope of humanity. And so after waiting and waiting and finally conceiving and giving birth to this son, suddenly in the next chapter, God tells Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. 
So just think about this at a human level. A couple who spends years struggling with infertility, praying and asking God to give them a child. And when they do finally miraculously conceive, get pregnant, have a baby, God then says, I want you to sacrifice that child. Now again, even though in the end of the story, Isaac's life is spared, why on earth would God mess with people like that? It just seems cruel and confusing. Those are just a couple of the questions that we could ask. There's many more. In fact, Bible students, Bible scholars have been wrestling with this text for thousands of years now. And some of us may have come from church backgrounds that discouraged us from asking hard questions like these of the Bible. Um, I would argue that if we're going to take the Bible seriously, that means asking hard questions. So Jesus commends childlike faith, but that doesn't mean childish faith. He commends a, a wonder, a curiosity, an inquisitiveness that would bring us to the text, as opposed to just accepting pat answers or Christianese cliches. So if you take the Bible seriously, this story is gonna raise some questions for you. And if that's you, you're in luck, because today I'm gonna to answer all those questions. So, <laughs> um, the truth is, this week I really struggled. Um, trying to figure out how to preach this passage. I spent hours and hours studying the text, reading commentaries, listening to lectures, asking God for clarity and wisdom in how to best bring his word to his people. And I was just so overwhelmed by all the different theories and interpretations and approaches to this text. And just when I thought I had some clarity and direction, all of a sudden I was like, oh man, but what about this angle? What about that idea? And so earlier in the week, as Sunday was coming and I'm starting to get stressed out, I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this word comes to me and brings complete clarity. This one word is Metallica. Now, it's probably not the word you're expecting. Usually Jesus is the right answer, but in this case, it's Metallica, one of the great heavy metal bands of all time. And uh, here's what I mean. A couple of years ago, it was the 30th anniversary of Metallica's great The Black Album. And um, in tribute, they put out a, a, a tribute album called The Blacklist, that features a whole bunch of different artists and bands covering Metallica's songs from the Black Album. And so there's like five or six different versions of each song. So like you have a song like Nothing Else Matters, you have Chris Stapleton doing a country version of it, and then you have Weezer doing a nerd rock version of it, and then you have Miley Cyrus doing a bad version of it. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's like a classical piano piece and a bluegrass piece and a 70s disco. And it's super, super cool. Really well done and interesting to listen to the same song five or six times interpreted five or six different ways. And so um, what I wanna do this morning is a blacklist style compilation of three different Christian interpretations of Genesis 22. So instead of one long sermon, I wanna to try to give you three shorter sermons. 
each one looking at the passage from a slightly different perspective. So these three mini sermons are called Abraham's Trusting Obedience, Abraham's Glaring Silence, and Abraham's Prophetic Nonviolence. That's the track list. Here we go. Track one, Abraham's Trusting Obedience. The first thing that's made clear to us in Genesis 22 is that this is a test. Verse one, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So as readers, we're given a sneak peek behind the scenes. We're told by the narrator that what's about to happen is that God is testing Abraham. So we know this is a test. Abraham doesn't know that, and neither does Isaac. So what that means is that the way that this story is told We're meant to understand that everything that happens here is in the context of a test that God is giving to Abraham. So the reason that God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son isn't because God wants Isaac dead or because God wants human sacrifice. The reason God tells Abraham to do it is because he's testing him. Now, we don't like the idea of a God who tests us. Most of us don't enjoy taking tests. But all the way throughout the Bible, testing is one of the main ways that God actively fathers his children. It's one of the ways he works in our lives to form faith in us. He puts us through events and experiences that are designed to help shape us into the people that he created and redeemed us to be. So it's not always fun to go through a test, but it is for our own good. And so this particular test, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your son who you love, this one who your whole future and legacy hang on, and I want you to offer him to me. What's God doing here? What God's doing here is going after the thing that Abraham is prone to love more than God himself. So Abraham never would have had a child in the first place unless God had given him a child. And so Isaac is a gift from God. But apparently God might be concerned here that Abraham has grown to love the gift more than he loves the giver. And so in order to test Abraham's love and loyalty, the giver says, I want my gift back. How does Abraham respond? Verse three, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Abraham responds, doing what God told him. Early the next morning, without hesitation, without arguing, without complaining, 
Without delay, he gets up and he does exactly what God tells him to do. Now what's interesting is you read through the text in Genesis 22, you're going to notice we aren't given a whole lot of feeling words. We aren't given a whole lot of insight into the inner workings of what's Abraham thinking and feeling in the midst of all of this. We're left to kind of project what those feelings might be, and certainly there were feelings. But the narrator doesn't seem too concerned with telling us about how Abraham felt. He seems concerned with telling us what Abraham did. So apparently, this test meant to form the faith of Abraham has to do with Abraham learning, trusting obedience to obey God no matter what even when he doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense. Obviously, he's got questions. Obviously, it's hard. That's the whole point. But Abraham knows God. They've been through a lot together by now. And Abraham knows that everything God does is good, right, and perfect, even if it doesn't seem like it at the time. And so Abraham responds to God with a trusting obedience. Whatever you ask of me, God, wherever you tell me to go, whatever you want me to do, the answer is yes. And the idea is that this is the kind of faith God is looking for. We know this because years later, the author of Hebrews would look back at this story and affirm Abraham's trusting obedience as true faith. In Hebrews 11, the author says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Okay? So sometimes we can read the New Testament to understand how to read the Old Testament. New Testament authors give us insights into how to interpret Old Testament passages. And so in this case, the author of Hebrews says what Abraham did, regardless of how he felt or what he thought about it or whatever fears or objections he had, the fact that he was obedient to God, that is faith. So does that mean that Abraham was actually going to go through with it? Because it's one thing to say Abraham was willing to give up his son, but it's another to actually do it. Was Abraham actually going to kill his child because God told him to? Maybe. Go back to the story, Genesis 22. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I, go, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So Abraham tells his servants that he and the boy are going, but that he and the boy will return. So it seems that even if Abraham didn't know how things were going to go down and what all was going to happen up on the mountain, he was confident that he and Isaac would come back down the mountain together. Hebrews 11 tells us a little bit more about what Abraham may have been thinking. 
He said, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is trusting obedience. This is faith. Abraham believed that God is fully prepared to handle the consequences of his obedience. Let me say that again. Faith is believing that God is fully prepared to handle the consequences of your obedience. Whatever he asks of you, he will always provide everything you need to do what he's called you to do and be who he's called you to be. Abraham believed that God would make a way, and that's faith. So, we might ask, what's the hard thing God is asking you to do today? Maybe God is asking you to stay in a hard situation. Or maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe he's asking you to leave a comfortable situation. Or maybe we should ask which of God's gifts in our lives are we prone to love more than we love the giver? Which of God's provisions do we trust in more than we trust the provider? And the question is, will you trust him in loving obedience, believing that he is fully prepared to handle the consequences? However God guides, God provides. This is the lesson of Abraham's trusting obedience. That's track one. Track two, Abraham's glaring silence. What would you do if you were Abraham? What would you do if after all you'd been through, you finally, you and your wife conceive and get pregnant and have this child this promised child, and then God says, I want you to sacrifice that child. And I don't mean like what's the right Sunday school answer here, like what's the real answer? I would have some problems with that. I would struggle to just, okay, yeah, that sounds good, I'll do that. I would have some questions at the very least. And what's strange about this story is that we don't have any record of Abraham asking any questions. He just does it. So in this variation on the story, God gives a command and Abraham passively complies rather than vigorously engaging. And the idea here is that God is testing Abraham, but the test is, how well do you know me? And how much do you love me? And when I ask you to do something that seems inconsistent with my character and with my word, are you just gonna mindlessly go along with that? Or do you love me and trust me enough to have a conversation? Now, here's what's interesting. If you go back just a few chapters to Genesis chapter 18, we have this whole different story. We don't have time for all the backstory, 
But long story short is this, Genesis 13, 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And then Genesis 18 says this, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Okay, so God is looking at, at these two cities and he's saying the wickedness of humanity, the, the depth of the depravity, it is so evil, it is so broken, it is so violent and so perverse. He's saying, I think I just want to wipe them out. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but what did Abraham do? Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Do you see what's happening here? God says, it's my intention to wipe out this wicked people. And Abraham stands up and says, God, I have a problem with that. And my problem isn't just that it offends me. The problem is that that doesn't seem like who you really are. I know that you are a righteous judge. I know that you always do what is good, right, and perfect. And if there are righteous people in that wicked city, but you kill them all, that doesn't seem righteous. That doesn't seem consistent with your character. That's a bold thing to do. Abraham says, so what if there's 50 people there? How does the Lord reply? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God says, that's a good point. <laughs> I'll do that. If you keep reading in the story, Abraham keeps negotiating. He goes, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? He gets it all the way down to 10. <laughs> and the whole time, God's like, okay, I'll do that. Deal, deal. He keeps the conversation going. We see this in Abraham, but we see this in other characters throughout the scripture, those that walked closely with God. Moses intercedes for the people of Israel after the golden calf incident. God says that he's gonna wipe them out and Moses stands between the people and God. Psalm 106 sums it up this way. It says, God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. How interesting. God said he was going to destroy them, but Moses stood up and asked God not to, and God did not. You see this in the prophets, calling Israel to repentance, asking God 
to postpone his judgment, to have mercy on the people, to give them time to see the foolishness of their ways. You see it over and over again. At one point, Jeremiah is so persistent in prayer that God three times tells him, Jeremiah, please stop praying because I really want to wipe these people out and I can't while you keep praying for them. (laughs) What an interesting dynamic. Later, God laments in Ezekiel 22 about the lack of prophetic intercession. He says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. God is looking for someone who will stand up to him. Not just passive, compliant obedience, but somebody who's gonna call out the seeming inconsistencies in God's character. Jesus himself would later say, you have not because you ask not. Meaning, there are things that God wants to do in our lives that he doesn't do unless we pray for them. It's mysterious, it's complex, But apparently, God isn't just looking for passive compliance. He wants full engagement. And so in this track, Abraham doesn't fail the test. But he sure doesn't pass with flying colors either. God is looking for a vigorous conversation partner. Someone to stand in the gap. Someone to intercede on behalf of the chosen one. And instead, Abraham just goes along with it. So I wonder for us, we also are called to be a nation of priests. Priests stand between God and the world. We speak to God on behalf of the world. We speak to the world on behalf of God. We're called to the work of intercession, which is really the life of prayer. Do we trust God enough? Do we know him well enough? Do we love him enough? Rather than just reciting our prayers to actually bring the fullness of our heart and our mind and our life before him. Not just going through the motions and saying the things we're supposed to say, but actually doing him the honor of bringing our whole self and our true self before him in prayer, whether that means lament or question or pain or whatever it is. Henry Nouwen puts it this way when it comes to our prayers. When we hide our shameful thoughts and repress our negative emotions, we can easily spiral down the emotional staircase to hatred and despair. Far better it is to cry out to God like Job pouring out to God our pain and anger and demanding to be answered. Only by expressing our anger and resentment directly to God in prayer will we come to know the fullness of love and freedom. Only in pouring out our story of fear, rejection, hatred, and bitterness can we hope to be healed. Abraham's glaring silence. Finally, track three, Abraham's prophetic nonviolence. One thing that's important to note in this story is that, of course, we as modern readers are offended, 
rightfully so, by the idea of human sacrifice. But this hasn't always been the case. In fact, in the ancient Near East, human sacrifice was something that was widespread and quite common. Lots of different people groups had human sacrifice as part of their worship rituals. And so, in this track, the reason that Abraham didn't protest or question God when God said, I want you to sacrifice your son, is that it didn't sound that crazy to Abraham. That was a pretty normal thing. Most of his neighbors had sacrificed their firstborn sons to their gods. And so Abraham just goes with it. So it wasn't surprising in that time and place for a father to take his son up a mountain to sacrifice him. What was surprising was for the father to bring that son back down the mountain with him. Back to the text, verse nine. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, again, it was not strange in the ancient world for a man to take his son up the mountain to be sacrificed to his God. What was strange was to bring that son back home alive. And it's through this ancient story that Abraham's descendants had came to understand that the life and the worship that the God of Israel had called them to looked radically different than the nations around them. Their theory or their model of God was forever changed by this event. That from this point on, the God of Israel would be known as the God who did not delight, did not require, did not want human sacrifice. One scholar said the divine rescue of Isaac beneath his father's knife promulgates an end to human sacrifice. So by providing the ram in the thicket, God was fundamentally changing Israel's understanding of what he desired and required of them in worship and Abraham's willingness to follow him in a new and better way is the example that we follow as well. The way of nonviolence. Just as an aside, we're like, all right, great that he didn't kill his son, but then he kills a sheep, and then that sets up this whole thing with animal sacrifice, and some of us are like, that's not much better, right? I'm just as offended or just as troubled by the idea of animal sacrifice, so what's up with that? And all I would say to that is, if you're a vegan, I'll give you a pass. The rest of us, every single day, eat animals that somebody killed so that we could live, okay? Vegans, well played. <laughs> Not only 
does this story disrupt the practice of human sacrifice, but at a larger scale, it actually confronts all human violence. And here's what's so interesting. What did Jesus think of this story? Many years later, tensions are high among Jesus and the Jewish people. They'd had about enough of him, and they're scheming, trying to come up with ways to get rid of him. Jesus catches on, and at one point in John 8, he says this. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, Abraham did not do such things. So interesting. Jesus says, if you were really Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. Okay? Abraham did a lot of things. What's Jesus talking about? Well, what did Abraham do when it came to the taking of human life? Abraham put down the knife. Jesus tells this Jewish mob that's threatening to kill him, if you were really the children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. You would put down the knife. Abraham didn't do such things. So Jesus is saying that Abraham's non-sacrifice of Isaac was a prophetic sign of how things work in his kingdom. Jesus is saying his kingdom is a kingdom of peace, not of violence. It's a kingdom of life, not of death. It's a kingdom of light, not of darkness. And the invitation then is that if we are going to live as part of Abraham's family, as part of the community that's formed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this will be a community marked by mercy, not by sacrifice. That we're called to be a people of peace and reconciliation in the world, not doing violence or harm to any human life but caring for the needs of every single person because every life is sacred. So we put down our knives and we take up our crosses and we join Jesus on his mission of reconciling all things. Those are three versions of this story. There's some pretty big differences. They sound pretty different. But honestly, I didn't uh, finish any of them. Because each of those sermons was about Abraham and Isaac. But a Christian sermon is about Jesus. And after all the books and the arguments and the lectures and the sermons all the different ways that Christians have wrestled with Genesis 22 over the years. The one thing that we've all understood fundamentally is that this isn't ultimately a story that points to itself, but this is a story that points us to another father 
and another son. A son who would also climb up the hill, carrying the wood of his death on his back. The father-son language of Genesis 22 is inescapable over and over again. Every time they speak to one another, every time God speaks to them about each other, the language is your father, Abraham, your son, Isaac. And the, the father-son language is what makes this story on, in some ways so problematic, but it's also what makes this story so powerful. Because ultimately this story points us to a father who gives his son as a sacrifice for the life of the world. In other words, the author's choice of terms in John 3.16 isn't coincidental. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whichever track you prefer, in the end, none of them are ultimately about the sacrifices that we make for God. It's all about the sacrifice that God has made for us. We are here to give ourselves to God, to offer ourselves to him in worship but only because he has first given himself to us in love. And we don't know what all the answers are to these hard questions and many others. We don't know the reason that God allows pain and loss and evil and suffering in our lives. We don't know what the reason is, but we know what the reason isn't. It's not that he doesn't love us, it's not that he doesn't care or that he isn't good. God gave his son for us. So let's receive Jesus again this morning. Amen.